AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. I'm Anish. Uh, I'm part of the cybersecurity team here at AT&T. Basically, I look at uh, the various threats that are coming in and help to protect the enterprise against those threats. Hey, Matt, I hear you have an interesting story related to Mirai. Yeah, this is pretty cool. So there's this group called Pentest Partners, and from what I can tell, they've been doing research on IoT botnets and devices that have vulnerabilities and things like that for a while. So they were interested in the fact that these DVR devices seem to be the main population for devices that Mirai is infecting. Uh, and they did a little bit of research on their own on a set of devices that really wasn't publicly known to be vulnerable to Mirai, just to see what else they could find. Turns out they found a lot. They found a bunch of vulnerabilities that were not that surprising. I mean, these, some of these devices had Telnet, would have been vulnerable to the Mirai. The, basically, it's password guessing is the way Mirai gets on boxes. It's very simple. Right. Um, but they found that there were maybe a few more passwords that Mirai would have been able to add that would have given them access to these, that there were some devices that had Telnet on alternate ports, but the same passwords that Mirai had. Um, some interesting, there was at least one bug in the web interface where if you send the right re request, you can actually kill the main process on these devices and they won't come back until the watchdog, which is like another process on the box that sure. checks, until that thing kicked it back up. And it could be up to two minutes before the camera started effectively working again or recording. So this is a way to knock off a, a device for two sure. minutes. You know, and if you want to walk past that camera, you've got two minutes to do whatever you want. And then so, they, could, they could keep doing it over and over, over again, Over and right? over, exactly. So there's a, there's a bunch in this report, and it's very interesting. They talk about a couple other vulnerabilities they found um, the one thing I found particularly interesting is they found um, the, the packaging tool. So basically the firmware creation tool they've got, you give it, you know, you can build your own firmware for these devices specifically and it's going to run because you've packaged it with the official tool. And you can make changes to the firmware that way. And this would be a great way if you wanted to patch out all the passwords, make the change the default, default passwords, you could do that and you can inoculate these devices against Mirai. On the other hand, you could build your own firmware with Mirai baked into it, and it would work just as well. I was really excited to, to learn about this firmware creation tool that they had. That tool itself introduces vulnerabilities in the, in the form of really weak username and password on Telnet. Uh, so you start to see a picture of why a device is vulnerable, not just necessarily just why it, that it is vulnerable, but why. So that was kind of cool. All these devices seem to be built so similarly that you know, like you said, you know, they're, they're, these are new devices, quote unquote, but they're still they're still in that same family. So mm -hmm. you just have to wonder, you know, when are we going to just fix them all, right? You know, you can't really. You know, if the devices they're selling are extremely cheap, it may not be worth it for them to even patch them. Although it's the right thing to do, they mm -hmm. may, they're probably looking at it from a financial aspect. Absolutely, and the question of whether or not they're actually going to get patched once there is a patch, because these things don't typically have an interface that people can get notified there is a patch available. Right. Uh, and then the population of people who are actually able to step through the steps to actually patch it is probably smaller than that. Right. You keep on going. So even still, it's a limited pool of people that will actually be able to patch it. Yeah. So that being said, you know, we have a lot, Mirai was still pretty large botnet, you know, that it did, it was very effective, I think, mm -hmm. uh, when it initially came out. So 
hearing this, they probably could have done a lot more to make it even larger, and they didn't. So what do you think that says about the, per the, you know, the attackers themselves? I wonder if it's... Mirai, the thing about Mirai that's kind of unique is that the source code was released publicly. Right. And that anybody and their mother could just go and, and run it. I mean, they may have to compile it for a couple different platforms, but that's not that difficult. That's the one barrier you actually have to get over. Um, it may indicate that there are people out there who are using just plain vanilla Mirai and not pushing to improve the source code they've got. And if there are, I know, I know there are some variants that are like that, but maybe it's few and far between. Uh, and also that these guys probably weren't super professional. They may have been collecting stuff on their own with a limited amount of what's made, been made public and not necessarily developing their own exploits. Now we have some public exploits, and that's why I think they might get added to at least one version of Mirai in the near future. Sure. Well, I think we never know why uh, what's in the mind of uh, you know some of the bad guys, but I think it you know it could be a matter of you know the Mirai botnet was pretty powerful in itself, so maybe they had enough and didn't need to put in the extra effort. You know, it's put in the amount of effort that's required and, and no more. I, I think we're never going to see the end of these IoT bugs. Um, at the very least, I can look forward to some entertaining uh, ownage. That's all. I, I think ultimately, if people keep buying them. They're going to keep selling them, and there's no incentive for anyone to, you know, patch these, make them even more secure. I think that's, that's true. the largest, you know, that's the larger problem that we need to address. I think you're right. I think in this case, the the manufacturer really has some work to do in order to change the default posture of the device because they have that wizard that allows you to pack a firmware and automatically configure some things for you. It would be great if they could make changes that make it secure by default. There are lots of things that they can do. So it was a report by Cybersecurity Ventures. They're, they're suggesting that uh, by 2021, there will be a, a half a million unfilled cybersecurity jobs in the U.S. alone. In the U.S., wow. Yes. And I think there, there's about three and a half million uh, overall, and I think that includes India and the U.S., because the demand for cybersecurity positions is just increasing at a, you know, at a sure. unreasonable rate, <laughs> I think, you know, because there's so many issues that we discuss here all the time, and they're continuing. And to me, that brings up an issue of long term as we fill try to fill these new positions you know a lot of that experience is not going to be there and mm -hmm. as the people that do have the experience are going to be you know leaving those positions at, at some point mm -hmm. or moving up to higher level positions and i think that's going to create a huge vacuum in the cybersecurity field so you raise a couple interesting questions there uh, the first is when they say cybersecurity jobs i mean do they mean like boots on the ground analyst jobs do they mean management positions? Do they specify what kinds or do they just say the whole gamut is? The report didn't uh, specify, uh, you know, but it did make, it did make the uh, suggestion that uh, um, they can, they're now considering every position related to IT a security position. Interesting. So I think that's a, I think that mindset is actually a really good mindset. So, you know, right from the get-go as far as uh, creating an application, creating any sort of develop, you know, any development projects have security baked into them right from the beginning. And I think overall, in the long term, that'll help, uh, you know, you know, make some of the problems, you know, a little less. Right, terrible. because instead of having like a core group of X number of people who are handling all the security issues for the company, at least the very basic stuff that you can teach everybody else who doesn't have to be an expert, they can handle those sorts of things, like having a, a secure development life cycle or having security awareness. As soon as somebody's hired, that becomes part of their, their basic training and that's their slice of security. Instead of having to put the work for all of that, I guess, on like a, a core team of people whose job is just security. Right. I think you'll never get away from that, having that core team right, and th those right. responsibilities. But I agree that there are certain things that 
everybody else in the company can do to help the security sure. effort as well. Sure. Do you think that they should be teaching more cybersecurity? And you know, so it's really a two-part question. Do you think they should be teaching it more in colleges and, and even high schools? And, and as well as, is, you know, where does the funding for that kind of uh, curriculum come from? Mm -hmm. For the long-term perspective, absolutely. Creating STEM education and cybersecurity programs in schools and getting kids involved in it is a great way to, to first build the interest and then cultivate the people who are interested in it as they grow. Unfortunately, we, on the shorter time frame, you don't have that luxury. I know myself, I took a, a, you know, a computer ethics course in college, and I think there's more of things like that that are becoming available that are, you know, they're not specific to cybersecurity, but I think they're, they're on track to getting to, that, to the area where the general population of students are becoming educated in that type of thing. But how do we address the overall skills shortage in terms right. of the doesn't, people we hire? It doesn't. Yeah. That's a great point. It so, doesn't address that. I mean, I, I agree that we should be teaching people in college. Um, I would have taken that sort of curriculum had they had it. But what I will say is that from what I know of the curriculums that are out there, and then transferring those skills into the job market, there's still a bit of a gap in terms of what you know from the books and your expert, right. you know, uh, exercises there and what you actually have to do in the workforce. I would actually like to see more companies taking their IT staff and cross-training them. If there's a way to, to do like a rotational program where you swap positions, IT takes security, security takes IT, not the whole department, but a few representatives just to get that cross-training in so that when they come back to their original positions, you've got people who understand the security problem. I mean, things just like basic understanding of TCP IP or being a Windows admin or a Linux admin will go a long way in understanding what's going on in the system. Like if you take someone who has absolutely no IT experience, train them in cybersecurity, you can do it. But I feel like in four years of college, you're not going to get them that background that they need right. to really understand what it is they just learned. Sure. And I don't mean that as a diss to anybody. Nobody's you know, unintelligent because of that. It's just they don't have the context to make sense of, of what's being taught. Because there's so much to teach. Yeah, well, maybe, maybe we need to do like, you know, we do with engineers and, and, you know, doctors and lawyers, you know, teachers and nurses, you know, where they actually have part of their curriculum is a year or two, you know, study, right? You know, working in the, in the field as, as part of the degree program. That's, that's a good point. To me, I, I think we just need to, we need to funnel more attention to, you know, students who want to do this and make it, make it uh, you know, something that's attractive to the students. I read an article that some guy was talking about fixing the skills gap, and he says, and I'm not sure if this is 100% accurate, but he's stated that if you were to take everybody graduated from college in the U.S. this year alone, if they were all to graduate with a cybersecurity degree, that would fix the skills shortage. But it's never going to happen. It's, not like, yeah. it's still like a very small percentage of the population that's going to graduate with a degree in this, right. which a little intimidating. As of today, uh, the attackers at a, are at a certain skill level five years from now. They're going to be even at a higher skill level. You know, and now we're talking not just nation states, but criminal actors. And that shortage of cybersecurity positions is just going to really increase the demand on, on the individuals that are filling those roles. And it's going to be tough. So John, uh, sounds like you got an interesting story. Uh, I didn't get all the details, but something to do with hyphens. Could you tell us a little more? Sure. Uh, what what we have here is, is a situation where, you know, we've taught our customers, we've taught our, you know, friends, family, whomever, that they have to do good security when they're browsing internet sites. So, you know, we teach them to look for the lock in the, in the browser. We teach them to check the URL that they're, they're you know, is in the address bar is clean. Well, some very uh, uh, enterprising uh, attackers have learned that in a, in a mobile device, you know, your screen size is only so big. 
And the challenge there is that in the address bar, you know, it's going to get truncated if you have a very long uh, URL. And so what they have actually done is they started with phishing or even, you know, redirected websites is that they'll, they'll put padded, uh, dash padded URLs, so there's a lot of hyphens in it, and then, then they actually have the real, you know, or the, the site has, has all these uh, hyphens in it. So when you look at it in your browser, in that address bar, it looks clean. It looks like www.goodcompany.com. But if you actually expand it all the way out, there's all these dashes in there. So it's goodcompany.com dash 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 attacker, you know, dot die dot net, you know, or whatever. So it's 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 all of a sudden we've gone to, you know, the, the users are typically not going to scroll over to see that whole URL. They're going to see what's in the address bar and think it's clean. And in reality, because of the truncation of the view, they're they're going to a bad site. You know, it's a normal sounding URL for a normal company that you might may want to visit their website, and it's a bad domain, and it's being used uh, to fish people's credentials. Is that something that's particular to any one browser that you can trick it in that way, or it's just just padding it out as far as it goes? It's just padding it out as far as it goes. You know, your browser URL can be really long. You know, in the old yep. old days, you know, it used to be a certain length is all a URL could be, mm -hmm. but now it, it's I don't even know if it, what the limit is. It's long. Let's put it that way, and, and so. But your screen size, even on a, on a PC, is, is, is only so big. So if you can pad that URL, that domain name or however else you're, you're, you're directing somebody to, out with some characters that maybe get padded off the end of the, uh, of the screen, they're not really going to see the whole URL unless they hit a cursor or scroll over in some fashion. I feel like it might be a little bit much to ask users to know every single terminating character that's valid in a URL. That might be a bit much but your browser probably should be able to tell you whether or not that is. I mean, there are things that are reasonable, there are things that are unreasonable, and I'm sure we can argue all day as to whether or not seven dashes in a, in a URL or in a domain name is, is really a, a legitimate thing. So maybe from a corporate security perspective or a managed security perspective, that'd be great to throw that into your threat hunting or your, your detection algorithms. But for a home user, you know, grandma sitting at home checking her Hotmail who sees that, I think there's, there needs to be something else that the browser does. I think that would be the right place to enforce it. That's true, and most people won't bother to do that because it's a little bit of a pain on mobile, isn't it? Well, and, and, and we've taught them this, right? We've, even the good, the good guys are looking at, okay, I see the lock, I see you know, the URL looks clean, you know, everything else is, looks good on my screen, so why would I even suspect that over, way over to the right on that URL is the actual you know, the bad domain? From a solutioning perspective, I don't really have a good solution yet, you know, to, to recommend it other than, you know, you got to look at that, make sure the end of the URL is really the end of the URL on that address bar. I do anticipate we'll see some vendors start trying to close this gap in the, you know, in the, in the actual, uh, you know, address bar, but I, I don't. You know, we don't really have a solution right now. So I think a possible workaround might be to maybe just use that uh, the app instead of going to the URL of that site. Yeah, and, and that's one thing to do is as long as you've got that app from a good place, then, you know, but it's still in the browser itself, like a, you know, like a Chrome, Safari, IE, you know, whatever, Firefox, whatever your favorite browser might be, you know, it's not necessarily, you know, that rule of looking at the URL 
and, and saying it's good, you know, you've got to make sure you've seen the entire thing. At least on Android, maybe you can tell me if this works on iOS because I'm not an iOS user, but if you go to a link for some applications and it's installed on your phone, the app will intercept it and say, I'm going to handle this as the application and not as the browser. Right. On iOS, it asks you, do you want to open in the app? Okay. So, so I would... That's a good measure. I mean, it, it makes sure that, you know, because the app will validate that URL for you and say, yeah, this is us, absolutely. Um, yeah. Hopefully you can train a user to say, because they'll be going from like email or some other place right. where they're clicking a link and not like directly trying to access that site. It's the link and if, if the validation from that app that sort of protects them. Right. And they have to be able to recognize if I click on that link, and that's the worst thing to tell someone, test it by clicking on it. <laughs> but if they click on it and it doesn't redirect them to the app, that should Maybe I need to double check this. These attackers are, are very creative and they're always one step ahead. They kind of recognize what's not, you know, what's working for them and maximize their efforts on those types of uh, issues. And then when, when something's not working, they figure out a new way that's more effective for them. So John, it's time for the famous Markley quiz. What have you got for us today? John's quizzes are typically fair. I don't know about this one. <laughs> it's almost like guessing dates you know, in history class. Well, this, this is a, a little bit of a history challenge quiz. Oh, no. And <laughs> a little science and a little history. One of the things that, you know, we, we always, especially those of us who are a little older, can remember the discussions that, you know, you can't crack a DES encryption key because we don't have the processing power to do it, you <laughs> know, especially not at home. You, you all don't remember that because you're so much younger than I am. But still, it's, I remember those discussions. And, you know, now we know we can. And so one of the things that got me thinking about when, you know, we talk about, oh, you can't do this at home or you can't do this in, you know, a year or you can't do this in, you know, 20 million years, whatever, is, is where the processing power for our devices have gone, uh, you know, over the last, you know, 10, 20 years. So, so this is a little quiz on... On, on floating point operations. Oh my goodness. All right. <laughs> See what we can do. So here we go. All right. So I don't know if either of you had the Nintendo GameCube. I oh, have yeah. three of them at home. Three. They were one of my favorite things to play with. So from a, and, it is, and I'll give you a hint, it's in the Gigaflop. How many Gigaflops do you think the Nintendo GameCube could do back in the day? Oh my goodness. Now I feel like I'm trying to recall like Nintendo marketing materials in my head. I think the, uh, you know, I think they just announced like a new Xbox One, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that set the seven or eight teraflops really? processing, okay. processing power. So that's a good baseline for where I would so expect that's where to we be. are today. So I'm, I'm really thinking down towards the one to two gigaflops now. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. I mean, I mean, I don't, I mean, the, with the graphics that there were back then, how much more processing power would you need? I don't know. Uh, you know what? I'm going to go with three. So 9.4 gigaflops. What? Really? Oh, all right. Thank goodness Manish knew off the top of his head some of the stats off the Xbox One X because I would have had no baseline. So, so let's, let's kind of say maybe a little newer and go to the iPhone 4. iPhone 4. How many gigaflops do you think the iPhone 4 could do? iPhone 4, which is probably about five years old, five, six years old. Um... Uh, I think gonna, it's that high. I don't. I think we're still in gigaflops. It might be at most one, one teraflop. Yeah, I'm thinking it's under though. Personally. Okay. Um, give it 750 gigaflops. Yeah, I was thinking around 700 to 800 gigaflops. <laughs> He's laughing. We're wrong. <laughs> we're wrong. <laughs> we're wrong. <laughs> we're wrong. <laughs> way off. Oh, we went the wrong way. 
So tell it's me hot. it's less. Oh, oh, it's a phone. Uh, okay. An old phone, older phone, I guess you'd say. It's a phone, so it's not a game console, so it doesn't have to be that's that. That's a powerful. good. That's an excellent point. I'm gonna go with six to be crazy. Really? Yeah. Why less. Not? Less. I'm gonna go less. Yeah. Interesting. I think I'm gonna go with twenty. Right, oh, there's, there's our winner. Yeah. One point six. <laughs> One point six. One point six gigaflops. Gigaflops. Wow. To think that over such a long period of time for, you know, a phone to have just a little bit more processing power than a Nintendo GameCube. It's, it's you know, it's, it's, to me, it's crazy. You know, it's, a, it's an aspect that I never really thought about. The last one I'm gonna give you today is the one that I think is, is gonna really, you know, in some ways it dates me, because I can remember when these devices came out, and that is the Cray 2, the Cray 2 oh, supercomputer. Yeah. That was the big one. The one you had, like, it had like, a, like seats around the outside. Couldn't you sit on the outside of a Cray, almost like? You could sit, it's a big machine. <laughs> I remember that was like my first computing book I ever saw was like, it was about the future of computing and here's this Cray the sitting Cray, there. Yeah. And people were like, oh, it's so cool. 10 gigaflops? I don't know, we seem to be going in the wrong direction here. Though. It was a supercomputer, but still. You gotta remember, we're talking, you know, 70s technology. I probably. Know, you know, I know. Yeah. Four. Oh, what four? It sounds, yeah. I think that's fair. Yeah, it's 1.9. Still, so still. iPhone 4. Oh, wow. I mean, you just think of the story is that here's these, these machines that we used to think, you know, and, and imagine that they were so powerful. And, and, and nowadays, and I think you guys were talking about the Xbox One X. I mean, the PlayStation 4, and I don't, you know, by itself is, is 1.43 teraflops. You know, the processing power that we're talking about it is, is tremendous. Good, good job, guys, on the quiz. Oh, thank you, John. Even though we got literally terrible. everything wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Next time you can quiz us on important historical dates down to the actual date. Yeah. Was, it, was it a Tuesday? You know, that'll be fair. The hour and time. Over time, the amount of the devices that and the increase in the processing power of these devices just kind of increases the ability for the attackers to you know, exploit the, that processing power to use for their own needs. 10, 20 years ago, people were saying something is absolutely secure, and it's, it's not a matter of is it secure, it's how long do I have to wait until someone proves me wrong in that space. Back in the day, they said you, you would never be able to crack DES in a lifetime. Uh, DES is considered kind of a joke at this point. Everyone's kind of moved on to AES and other, other ciphers. Before I started at AT&T, once I found out who I was going to be interviewed by, I immediately searched their name, and the first thing that popped up was Threat Track. And uh, my, the first show that I ever watched was John Huggaboom, uh, Matt Kaiser were on it, and I was like, wow, these guys are awesome. Like, these are the guys that I want to work with, and for me to be working here today, and especially being on the show, is just an amazing experience. I'm so happy that I'm here right now. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.